True events. I'm Heather, married to Brian, mother to Zoe. Hi, I'm Brian, married to Heather, father to Zoe. Hey, I'm Zoe, daughter to Heather and Brian. Hey. Hey. We're the Grays. We're your film fam. So today we're talking about the true events that inspired Spike Lee's 1989 film, Do the Right Thing. Um, talking about this movie, especially right now with the George Floyd trial going on, is really heavy. Um, talking about the murders and deaths that inspired Spike Lee to make this film is really heavy, and um, I we want to do it right. First, we could just talk about how wonderful the movie is and how colorful and beautiful and empathic and funny and heartbreaking. And just the most brilliant cast. I mean, like this, it it's ridiculous to me, like how many people are in this cast that are all like so good and and so like iconic. Like when you think of like an iconic character from this movie, like there's like seven, there's seven or eight, like and so right off them, the top of your mind. For so many of them, it was their first movie, and it's like they just found them and put them in a movie, and now they're stars. Yeah, it was like Rosie Perez's first movie. And I, I don't think know Martin Lawrence. Yeah, I think maybe. But he had been a, like a comedian. It's a masterpiece for many reasons. And um, and also right now, in 2021, it is the only movie by a black director on the American Film Institute's top 100 list. And hopefully wow. they will update that list soon. It last came out in 2007 and bring other movies by black American directors to the list and that they move do the right thing up to a higher number on the list because on my personal list it would be pretty high up there. So Absolutely. I mean the filmmaking uh, what stood out to me was the colors, the the vibrancy yes. of the colors yeah. that play with the emotions of the characters and with the you know the, the stated heat that right. goes on during the movie. The there's red, only so much, so much red. There's only so much you can talk about the heat and show people sweating, but the colors play it up and bring it into your living room, or I guess originally in the theater, and make you feel it. Yeah, I saw, I mean, because this whole thing was filmed in Bed-Stuy, but I saw that uh, Spike Lee and I guess the, you know, set designer, they, they like, redid those blocks that they were filming on to, like, make the streets and the surroundings more red and orange and warm color palette so that it would all just feel so, like, hot, <laughs> which it does. And, I mean, that's the whole point. Like, it's simmering the whole movie. It it is one of those movies that is very enjoyable. I don't know. I saying enjoyable and entertaining. It it's more than that. No, but it's also very tragic. But it I is, know what you mean because there's some movies that are like good movies that it's like I don't feel like what you know like when is the right time to like watch. I don't know, like Apocalypse Now. Like there's certain there's certain movies that are like high up there on like some of the the best movies made by Americans that we consider that are like not like a slog, but like it's hard to get into. And I've never seen a Spike Lee joint that is hard to get into. Like it just draws you in and keeps you there. Like it's so engaging, even right. when it is like engaging, so it's, tragic. It's yeah, engaging from the get go with that opening with um rosie perez dancing 
and yeah and then engaging very engaging all the way through and then still elevated by what i think you know can elevate a movie like the cinematography the the angles that he used the what they call them dutch angles I'll, we'll get more into that i think we can talk a little bit more about it but um if you haven't seen it recently if you didn't see it since you know 2020 i recommend watching it again right now because it is as relevant it is a hundred percent as relevant if not more so than in 1989 when it came out which is very sad to say yeah, I was talking about like what well, feels because we decided, you know, weeks ago that we were going to do this movie. This was always like one of the top ones we had in mind when we were starting this podcast. And then, you know, things happened with Duante Wright and with Adam Toledo. And like, I, I felt like saying like, this is more, this is very relevant, but like, it's never not been really over the right, past but, 32 years. I mean, when this when this came out, I, I, I think Spike Lee was speaking a language that a lot of people spoke, uh, mostly black people. And now, 30 years later, some white people have learned that language and they can receive the message in the way it was intended. Uh, he, he was talking about the, the classic question as, as much as uh, uh, maybe um, Meatloaf gets asked, you know, uh, what is that? What is, I won't do that. People ask Spike Lee, did Mookie do the right thing? And right. he said, the only people who ever asked me that are white people. Uh, the black people, even back in 1989, they spoke the language. They knew. They knew what was going on in his head and why he did what he did. And now, 30 years later, it's kind of getting into the public consciousness that this doesn't really need explanation. It, 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 it does. There's not this big question about what was going through his mind. People are starting to feel what was going on. Right. But I mean, we're we're having time. those conversations with everything that happened in 2020 of like, finally, white people and people that haven't been subjected to police brutality in the same way understanding that someone's business is not the same as someone's life and it's not a comparable destruction um right. which i i know at the time was like controversial to white audiences like if he should have done that and yeah i mean i don't remember what i thought the first time i watched it because i was i was a lot younger and not very politically involved it's just and i think that's part of what the simmering does and the heat the oppressive heat the whole time building up to that ending with the literal fire um is just makes it feel so like something needs to give like something needs to happen and i'm not gonna say it's cathartic because there's still no that's something that is being talked about right now anyways it's like there's not justice like it's still not justice justice would be and not happening in the first place but but maybe just some kind of release i don't know it's, it's a, a it's a complicated move. topic it's a protest right well so spike lee himself he said that he was inspired to write do the right thing after something called the howard beach incident and that's what i'm going to talk about um so trigger warning in this episode for 
I mean, at least in my story, I don't know exactly what Brian and Zoe are bringing, um, but my story has um, uh, racial violence. Yeah. yeah, mine as well. Yeah, and police brutality. Right. Yeah. So on December 20th, 1986, uh, three years before Do the Right Thing came out, um, four black men, Michael Griffith, who's 23, uh, Michael Griffith's mother's boyfriend, whose name was Cedric Sandiford, he's 36, a friend named Timothy Grimes, who's 20, and Michael Griffith's cousin, Curtis Sylvester, also 20, and a Florida State University student, were traveling in a 1976 Buick from their Brooklyn neighborhood to Queens to collect Michael Griffith's paycheck at a construction site where Michael Griffith and Sandiford worked. On their way back, there, well, so this is something you know, Zoe, you used to have to like pick up your paycheck. <laughs> it didn't used to be like direct deposited because there was no internet to directly deposit it over. You used to have to go in person and pick it up in an envelope and then take it to a bank. I remember that from the movie Do the Right Thing. <laughs> <laughs> and it was cash business. Okay, so they go to the construction site um, in the evening, I guess, and then on the way back, their car breaks down. It's Curtis Sylvester's car. And it breaks down on, and I'm going to say New York places, even though I'm not from New York, but I'm, I want to include them in here. It breaks down on Broad Channel, Queens, about three miles from the neighborhood of Howard Beach. So first, um, Curtis stayed with the car, and the other three walked to a toll plaza that they had passed to get water to put in the car's radiator. Like they thought that could be what fixed it. And that took a while. It was three miles. So they had to walk three miles and get the water and then walk three miles back to the car. And that did not fix the car. So they tried to walk. They're like, okay, now we're going to walk to the closest neighborhood, which was Howard Beach. And they wanted to go there to find a payphone and see if they could get someone to like come out and help them. So Curtis Sylvester, he stayed with his car. And Michael Griffith, um, Curtis Sandiford and Timothy Grimes walked into Howard Beach, which is a predominantly Italian-American community. They were passed by a group of white teenagers in a car who yelled racial slurs at them, and then a group of white teens on foot who were on their way to a party also like stopped and shouted racial slurs and told them, like, get out of our neighborhood, N-word, and then went on to their party. And Michael, Cedric, and Timothy got uh, like to a place and where they could use a phone. And there was a pizza place called the New Park Pizza. And they decided to get something to eat because it was already well past dinner. And they had been walking and doing things for a while. While they were in New Park Pizza, someone reported to the police that three suspicious black men were inside the pizza parlor. Like they had the police called on them for eating at a pizza place in a white neighborhood. And a squad car from the 106th precinct arrived, but the police were told by an employee that the three men were just eating, and so the cops left. And it was already pretty late at this point. Um, so the three men, when they leave the pizza place to walk back to their car, it's 12.40 a.m. And at that point, the white teens that had bothered the men earlier were waiting outside for them with more friends. Um, they had at least one baseball bat 
a tire iron and tree branches, and there's about a dozen of them. So there was, you know, a confrontation, and they said, get out of our neighborhood, N-word, and, and they started chasing them, and some of them chased the men. Um, and again, Grimes and, I'm saying men, but like My Michael age. Griffith, How, yeah, yeah, they're they're 20. Sandiford was 36, but the other two are only 20. So that's your age, yeah. And the people chasing them were like 16, 17, 18, 19 years old, the, the teenagers. So they started chasing um, the three of them. Some of the white people were on foot. Some got in cars. They're like, get them, get the N-word. And Grimes, he drew a knife because they were like surrounding him. And he was able to get away with only minor injuries. And he got away from the whole scene. That's good. Uh, they did catch Cedric Sanderford, and he begged, God, don't kill us, while he was being beaten with a baseball bat and tree branches. And Michael Griffith was also severely beaten, but he managed to also get away and jump through a small hole in a fence next to the highway. And as he had been already beaten up some, he was like staggering across the six-lane expressway trying to escape them, and he was hit and killed. And the driver did not stay at the scene. And the driver was the son of a police officer. Apparently, he got out and looked around and didn't see anything. And so he just drove away. Wow. So the boys, the, the young men who were beating up these other me young men, um, the white people were, even when they saw him hit by a car, they continued to hit Sandiford. So the police arrive around 1 a.m., and Sandiford, again, who is Michael Griffith's mother's boyfriend, um, he's bloody. They find him. He's bloody. He's dazed. He's walking on the parkway. And the officers take him back to Michael Griffith's dead body. And they start treating him like he's a suspect. And they put him in the police car. They refuse to give him medical attention. And they take him down to the police station. And they force him to tell the story of the assault over and over again until dawn. Like they're treating him like mm -hmm. he was the victim and they're treating him like he did something wrong because again, this is 1986. How old were you guys in 1986? Uh, I was Thir 12. 13. Yeah. So that's the Howard beach incident and it sparked protests in the African-American community, you know, all over New York and black Civil rights um, activist Reverend Al Sharpton led a protest of over uh, 1,500 people into Howard Beach. And when they marched into the neighborhood, the residents of Howard Beach called them the N-word and threw watermelon and other things at them. And I saw videos and pictures of this. And there were Nazis there, like, just to come and show support. So, you know. Wow. Yeah. Then other activists and black leaders called for a boycott of all white-owned businesses in Howard Beach. And they led other nonviolent protests, and they closed down. Uh, on one day, they closed down some subways, a bridge, and other places. Uh, like nonviolent, but arrestable protests. Like they, they kept the bridge from being uh, driven on. They, they got down and stood on the tracks of the subway, so they'd have to stop the subway from going. And they were able to all get arrested to do a, a nonviolent action, which mm -hmm. 
caused this case to get to be very high profile. Maybe it would have anyways, um, but that's part of what they were doing. It's like, let's draw as much attention as we can to this. Yeah, that's the core of civil disobedience. You know, that, that wasn't about violating the law and getting away with it. It was about violating the law and being, you know, quote, caught right. uh, because you're making a statement. So a special prosecutor was appointed by then Governor Mario Cuomo, and um, he brought charges of manslaughter, second-degree murder, and first-degree assault against the ringleaders, John Lester, Jason Landone, Scott Kern, and Michael Perrone. The other um, men, white men, in the mob were charged with uh, lesser offenses. So anything about the police officers that were no at the scene? No. <laughs> Um, the tri- in the trial, the defense attorneys tried to portray the black men as the aggressors. Like, they came in and were aggressive, and that's why we had to, I mean, and, and Grimes in particular, uh, he had a really hard time being on the stand and having to deal with, like, the racist questioning he was getting from the defense attorneys and had to be pulled out of the, the courtroom a couple times because he just started, like, yelling, like, you know, uh, I'm finished, I'm finished, because he's traumatized. He's a young man and was really traumatized over this. Um, right, and to have to go through that again, like, on the stand. Right, and to be told, like, you're, maybe you guys all got chased and beaten and driven onto the street to be hit by a car because you did something wrong. Cedric Sandiford, um, he was a major witness for the prosecution, He was born in Guyana and immigrated to the U.S. in 1968. He served in the Army for two years. And during the trial, the defense tried to use his history of drug addiction and alcoholism to undermine his credibility. So they were really going against, I mean, mean, they're lawyers, and I guess that's what they're supposed to do. But it was was very racist um, profiling in the case. But one of the white boys slash men, age 19 at the time of the trial, he cooperated with the investigation. And so he admitted that they confronted the black men um, at the pizzeria, that they shouted racial slurs, that they had metal baseball bats. I mean, he just admitted to all of it and he cooperated. And so that really helped in the trial um, that one of them actually came forward and admitted to what they did. So December 21st, 1987, um, after, so it was a, a year and a day after the Howard Beach incident. And after 12 days of deliberation, the jury found the three defendants guilty of second-degree manslaughter and first-degree assault, but innocent of attempted murder and riot charges. John Lester, who was considered the ringleader, he held the bat. He was age 18. He was sentenced to 10 to 30 years in prison. Jason Landone, he's age 17. Um, These ages are all at this time when they're being sentenced. So they were a year younger when uh, the incident occurred. He received a 5 to 15 year sentence. Scott Kern, age 19, was sentenced to 6 to 18 years in prison. And the jury acquitted Michael Perrone, age 18, of all charges. The other participants, Salvatore D. Simone, 20, William Bolander, 18, James Covinelli, 17, John Seguis, 20, Thomas Giacardo, 18, Harry Bionacor, 19, 
Thomas Farino, 17, and Robert Riley, who was one that um, cooperated, he was 20 at this time, all received lighter sentences, and in most cases, they just received community service. John Lester was paroled in 2001 and deported back to England, because he was actually from England, uh, and he committed suicide in 2017. Scott Kern was released in 2002, and Jason Landone was paroled in 2000. The rest of them all like just went on to have normal lives and and be fathers and businessmen or whatever. So Spike Lee said that do the right thing points to the Howard Beach incident with the use of a pizza parlor as like the main gathering place, that it's the conflict is with Italian Americans, and also that the call for a boycott of white-owned businesses, which mm -hmm. Al Sharpton called for, um, is part of the plot where Buggy Now is instigating a boycott with Sal's. And at the end credits, uh, Lee includes a dedication to Michael Griffith's family and the families of five other black New Yorkers who died in similar circumstances. And also a scene in the movie where the firemen are there and Sal's is on fire and um, the people in the neighborhood start chanting Howard Beach. Although I also saw someone say that they were chanting Coward Beach. So I'm not sure, but I, I thought it was supposed to be Howard Beach. So that is one of the terrible stories that inspired Do the Right Thing. Well, also in the dedication at the end, um, someone else in there is a woman named Eleanor Bumpers. Uh, and Spike Lee has spoken on the Eleanor Bumpers incident, um, which I'm, I'm, I'm going to talk about, but I wanted to start off the talk uh, so that I can put you in the right frame of mind. There's actually two frame of minds, but the first one, Spike Lee blames Mayor Ed Koch of New York, uh, quote, because he was giving the signals the wink wink like it's open season. The second thing that you should know first, and everyone should have known first, is that Eleanor Bumpers had psychiatric problems and was under treatment and had been hospitalized three times. So leading into this story, this takes place three years before the previous story, 1984. Eleanor Bumpers was living on public assistance, which partially paid for her rent, her living expenses, uh, in a, uh, an apartment that was uh, between 90 and $100 a month. And uh, she told her daughter, Mary, uh, who was one of seven children, uh, that someone in the building was harassing her. Uh, and Mary advised her to keep the door locked to say, stay safe. Uh, she stopped paying rent due to maintenance problems. Uh, and and there's, there's some disagreement in the record about her, her payment history. Uh, Mildred Europa Taylor from Face-to-Face uh, -face Africa uh, said she had a good payment history uh, and eviction proceedings started when she just got one month behind. Val Coleman Housing Authority in, uh, in 1984 said that uh, she lived there for two years and paid her rent sporadically. Uh, and they even had different figures for the amount of rent. So something got lost in translation, but the one was 30 years after the other. So maybe more information came out between that. The uh, Mildred Europa Taylor article was, is, is contemporary uh, and so has the advantage of all of those years of collecting the actual information. Uh, the uh, Human Resources Administration had emergency rent funds for seniors facing eviction, 
But Bumpers was denied that money. I couldn't find out why she was denied. Uh, eventually, she ended up four months behind in rent. Wait, uh, so she was a senior. She was a senior. She was 66. Okay. Uh, and she was she was low income, receiving assistance. And so, and, and she was in touch. She had a social worker assigned uh, to her case. People should have known what was going on with her. She didn't allow maintenance workers to enter uh, and wouldn't pay the rent because, uh, quote, people had come through the windows, the walls, and the floors and had ripped her off. So all this is to say it shouldn't have been a surprise to anyone that she needed help. She needed psychiatric assistance. Um, eventually, they did send in a psychiatrist, uh, Dr. Robert John, who uh, concluded that she was psychotic and unable to manage her affairs properly. But in that meeting, she had, uh, she had a knife with her on the, on the windowsill. During the meeting, she took the knife and put it across her stomach. She never brandished it. The psychiatrist left that meeting feeling like she's having hallucinations. She's seeing things that aren't there. She's psychotic. But... She's tidy, she's neat, she takes care of herself, she's in good health. And the thing with the knife was interpreted as uh, defensive. She never threatened with it, and she's not a uh, danger to others or herself. So there was no grounds for forcible commitment to an institution. Um, her... Can I, sorry, can I just break yeah. in for a second? Think about how many white men walk around with guns like i need to be able to bring my guns into chick-fil-a yeah. so i can protect myself but a woman maybe it's looked askance if she is holding a knife in, in her, her own, own house <laughs> and a stranger comes in to question her right i mean i believe she it you know she could have been people can be a danger to themselves or others but just the fact that she had a knife she should be allowed to yeah i mean already just the story's not over yet, but I'm just thinking about what profound failings we have in our whole system for for mental health help, especially for older folks. Like, uh, and people living in poverty. Yeah. Yes, it's right. terrible. And, and, I mean... Heartbreaking. I'm going I'm to bring back up this social worker uh, because uh, afterward, only afterward, uh, you know, people are testifying. It comes out that... Uh, that she has chased people with this knife before. At least five people testified, including uh, a child, was chased with a knife and, and threatened with it. Uh, and the social worker knew about it and did not inform the psychiatrist. Uh, and so this all kind of leads up to, again, this social worker. I'm, <laughs> um, his name is uh, Herman Ruiz. And he decided uh, on his own he was going to make a legal judgment that the legal way to get her the help she needs is to evict her because then she's homeless and then she can be forcibly committed. Oh. Uh, and so the wheels get in motion and they're going to come in and evict her, but not all the information gets relayed. October 29th, 1984, the housing authority attempts the eviction. There is testimony that bumpers yelled through the window and threatened to throw boiling lye at the next face to appear. So they called in the NYPD Emergency Service Unit, which is armed police. Uh, 
They couldn't get her to open the door, so they drilled out the lock, looked through the lock, and saw her naked with the knife. They knocked down the door, and they used plastic shields and a Y-shaped bar to push her against the wall and restrain her. Uh, she fought free of that, waved the knife at an officer. The officer's partner, Stephen Sullivan, shot her with a shotgun, hitting her right hand uh, and destroying the hand. Uh, he shot again, hitting her on the right side of her chest, and that was the fatal wound. So they shot her while she was restrained? No, she fought free. She, she fought free of the Y-shaped bar. Um, but they also... I'll, I'll, they're shooting... At I'll talk about and, this. Yeah. At a, yeah. a, a naked 270-pound woman uh, who was 66 years old. Right, and they have shields. Yes. Um, I'm, I'm just... Imagine them ever doing this to a right. white woman. Right. Absolutely not. An elderly, yeah. And, I mean, I, I didn't see any discussion of this, but it occurs to me that, okay, they're there, they drill out the lock, they look inside, they see that she's naked with a knife. Okay, let's look at what we have now. Can we handle that safely? No, probably not. We have a couple shields, but there's no stab vests, there's no riot gear, there's no helmets. Let's go away, get better prepared, come back with the right force to take, to take this woman and, and, and evict her without, without causing anybody to die. They didn't do that. They just went in because they knew that the guy behind the people with the shields had a shotgun in case anything went wrong. Right. And this was... Because they knew they wouldn't get in trouble. <laughs> it's not just that they wouldn't get in trouble. This was simply how they did things. Evicting people slash do evicting people things. who are on assistance who are living in assi an assisted housing situation evicting them with shotguns yeah hey, first of all just evicting them in the first place but then also right but you know I would rather like destroy your hand and kill you but this than yeah this this tracks back to what uh, what Spike Lee said um, I'll go back to the quote he blames Mayor Koch because he was giving the signals, the wink, wink, like it's open season. And this, mm. was, this was policy, and we will see that. Um, but before we see that, uh, one more bit of information. Instead of a covered gurney, when they wheel her out, they didn't wheel her out. The police carried out her naked and bloody body for everyone to see and left a finger behind for her family to find. What? Oh, my God. They didn't That's even really terrible. clean up. So... Of course, there were investigations, um, and there was a trial for uh, uh, for the officer that shot her, Officer Stephen Sullivan. I, I read, I read, I went into uh, uh, the Daily News, the New York Daily News, and I looked up articles from the next day, from uh, a couple months later, uh, December second. It looks like they had been collecting information, and there was a series of articles in one particular day's issue that addressed what went wrong, uh, and then do the right thing, and then a huge gap of time, and then there are articles that are very recent, like in the last 10 years, talking about looking back at the legacy. Not a whole lot in the middle. The, uh, the articles from the time, they looked at what could have been done differently, but none of them suggest that what could have been done differently was a different mindset on, on the part of the police, that they shouldn't have thought that We'll try a little something. If a little something doesn't work, we'll shoot her. Right. Uh, so 
like leave come back another day yeah, or just leave right yes don't do that at all right <laughs> but don't evict her but you know that's a whole other can of worms and they, and they and it talks about uh how the police didn't know that there was a long and extensive history of violent behavior and that she'd been go- undergoing psychiatric treatment for eight years um but herman ruiz knew and ultimately i, I can skip to the end on herman ruiz um his bosses were demoted. He was simply, uh, he received additional education, quote, a course to improve his written and oral communication skills. Uh, His boss said the tragedy in this case is that Ruiz is a very sweet guy, but he doesn't have the minimum educational requirements to be a caseworker. I dug into that a little more, and he actually was grandfathered into the job when they merged from some other type of department, and he was never qualified to be a, a, a social caseworker. So maybe that was simply incompetence. But one thing well, that... Well, on his part... Yes. Oh, oh the, yeah. Right, as a whole. <laughs> one thing that stood out to me as I was reading about the, uh, the, the court case that came ab- about uh, is I, n- I never saw any mention of, of the knife. And it occurred to me that police absolutely look out for each other. The only other person in that room was dead. So was there really a knife? And uh, because if there was, you know, you you could, you would find a blade and a handle that had been shot because it was her dominant hand that got shot ostensibly while holding a knife. And I finally found it. It wasn't in any articles then or now. I had to go into the proceedings of the court case itself. And it was entered into evidence, and it was examined by forensics. And they did find lead in pieces of wood that made up the handle. It had been shot. Uh, And that makes a difference uh, because it shows that the hand that had been holding the knife was shot off and the knife with it. So why the second shot? Right. She's no longer armed. I mean, what? Right. And the case hinged. And she's terribly injured. Yeah. Uh, The case hinged on two facts that remained unresolved. The the two sides in the case agreed on everything except for two facts. Uh, One, the police testified that she remained in possession of the knife after the first shot. Medical testimony contradicted that and asserted that it was anatomically impossible to remain in possession of the knife. Number two, the police say that it was about it was one to two seconds between the shots. Witnesses outside the room heard four to five seconds between shots. Mm-hmm. So, Which is enough time to like decide to shoot her again. Exactly. Um, and uh, I mean, this is in an analysis of the case in a, um, in, a, in a quote from the case. It is apparent that the grand jury accepted the testimony of the expert witnesses. Also, that the jurors thereby rejected the testimony of the defendant and the other officer that Mrs. Bumpers continued to hold the knife in her hand after the first shot had been fired. Criminal term, which is what they call the court, the authority, criminal term substituted its own evaluation of the inferences to be drawn from the evidence for that of the grand jury, thereby usurping the grand jury's function as finder of fact. So, in other words, the judge decided that she remained in possession of the knife and it was only one or two seconds between shots. Justifying Even the second shot. Even though the jury shot. thought that wasn't true. Yeah. Right, but the jury disagreed. But here's, here's, here's the one thing that, that 
who really makes everything else moot. Justice Vital found that Officer Sullivan's acts were in conformity with the guidelines and procedures outlined in the Emergency Service Unit Manual. Isn't that how it is? Yep. And everything else aside, maybe she was disarmed. Maybe she couldn't do anything. Maybe shooting her a second time was in conformity with the guidelines and procedures. And they're just allowed to do that. And it, how many times have we heard that it's all about whether the officers feel afraid. Right. That's the justification. If you feel afraid, you're allowed to shoot. And I've seen AMAs, I've seen firsthand discussions from contemporary police officers who talk about their training and talk about how much they are impressed upon that you are supposed to be afraid at all times. We're training you to be afraid. And so they're always justified in shooting as per the guidelines and procedures in, in, in their manuals. Right. And in our society, in our racist society of America, um, black people are scary. So whether, or brown skinned people. So whether you're a 60 something year old woman or a 13 year old kid, you're scary. And then they can, it's, then it's within the guidelines for them to shoot you if that's how they feel. Yeah. So the legacy of this, um, the NYPD did change its guidelines to require a senior officer to be on hand before police confront an emotionally disturbed person, and they began to carry less lethal weapons like tasers, and they're only supposed to use deadly force if there is an immediate threat to someone's life. Uh, so I, I, that, that seems pretty obvious, but those were new, those were new changes that came about after this. Right. Uh, uh, it sparked national outrage. Uh, Mary, Eleanor's daughter, and Veronica Perry, whose 17 year old son had been killed by police, uh, led a grassroots initiative in New York City to fight police violence in black communities uh, through the 1980s. Um, Mary sued the police department and the city uh, for $10 million, got a $200,000 settlement, because uh, it's a lot easier to, it's a lot easier to win a wrongful death suit in civil court than it is uh, to, to prosecute in criminal court where you need... A, well, especially if it's the police. Yeah, yeah. Um, they were both keynote speakers at the Memorial Baptist Church in Harlem. Uh, they delivered rousing speeches. Perry said, we will not stand for the KKK in blue uniforms. Uh, in October of 1986, in a memorial service at the House of the Lord Church in Brooklyn, they were joined by several other black women, including Carrie Stewart, the mother of graffiti artist Michael Stewart, uh, and a bunch of mothers of black kids shot by police. Uh, they formed the Mothers of the Movement, uh, a group of black mothers whose sons and daughters had been killed while in police custody. And uh, I feel like that ties in uh, that uh, Carrie Stewart was involved in this because Zoe is going to talk about Michael Stewart. Michael Stewart. Yeah. So this is uh, before both of your stories in 1983. Um, and Michael Stewart's name is mentioned in Do the Right Thing. It's one of the things that they are shouting after the death of Radio Raheem where they, they kind of mention a lot of, probably a lot of these things that we've been talking right, about. Right, they say... They killed him. They just killed him. Like, and then they said, just like Michael Stewart. And then they say, just like Eleanor Bumpers. 
they mentioned both right. those names right, right one after the other so so this yeah this was six years before the movie came out um so Michael Stewart was an aspiring artist. Uh, he took photography classes. He was a student at the Pratt Institute in Brooklyn. Um, he had tried some modeling. He'd started painting. Um, and he had a signature tag that he left on walls uh, doing some street art. Um, he was... Uh, he was he was 25. Um, he was dating or had dated... Um, Suzanne Malouk, who uh, famously, uh, she was part of this like neo-expressionist uh, New York City movement. She also famously had a relationship with Jean-Michel Basquiat. So it was it was that circle um, where like street art was actually and like graffiti art was really coming into like, I mean, it had been happening since, you know, for for over a decade, you know, and, and building in popularity, but at this point like they were actually, the right. There were actually like galleries in Manhattan, uh, where, yeah, it was, it was coming, I guess, m more like broadly accepted or known about. Um, and like Jean-Michel Basquiat is like a, a very famous example of that. So the, uh, he had contact with Michael Stewart. Michael Stewart was kind of on the fringes of this group. Like, he wasn't famous, but he wanted to be. Um, he was only 25. He was taking art classes and trying to do all the, you know, to do the things. Uh, in this night, in 1983, uh, he was leaving the Pyramid Club on the Lower East Side, which was um, a club that, like, artists frequented. There's, like, some drag stuff happened there. Um, he was waiting to catch a subway uh, in New York City, and he wrote some graffiti on the wall, uh, his, like, signature tag, which, you know, compared to, to put in perspective, like, like Basquiat did, like, whole, like, murals, you know, like, there's a, a whole tradition of huge uh, graffiti art murals on, on train cars and in subways, but, you know, that's not what he was doing. He wasn't what was that the move uh the get down right, yeah, you know it wasn't um, thinking about the get down it's just a, a tag uh while he was waiting at the first avenue station um and a transit police officer named john caustic sees him doing it and arrests him people people aren't sure um i found a, a contradicting reports of like if it was like spray paint or if it was like a, a graffiti like marker uh, or pen um so he arrests him for that um, Michael Stewart asks him, like, don't call my parents. He still lived with his parents. Like, I don't want you to wake up my parents to tell them that you're arresting me for this. And then he tries to run. He tries to get away, uh, according to John Caustic, while they're waiting for the arrest transport van. And he's restrained. Um, they put him in the van and they start taking him to the transit police station at Union Square, which is two blocks away. And the cops in the van said that he became, quote unquote, very violent in the van. Um, all we really know is that he he gets outside and like it's they're right by the Parsons School of Design. Uh, and we know this because 27 Parsons School of Design students can hear the struggle as he tries to 
like get away um again outside the uh the transit police station and the cops beat him very violently they can hear like him screaming uh they can hear the struggle one of those students was rob zombie who's like talked about like he had to he was called in to testify and everything um so he's he's beaten unconscious and they hog tie him with an elastic strap uh there's multiple cops uh six cops um with michael stewart um, so he's booked at the station for resisting arrest and for unlawful possession of marijuana. Um, neither of which were the thing that he was even presumably arrested for in the first place, which was doing graffiti art, which we all know by now how easy it is to find a reason to arrest a black person if you want right. to isn't that uh, questionable why you even need to have police with guns ask people like pull people over for traffic violations right you know because if you're um, white then you can just pay your ticket but if you're black now that now they're interacting with you with a gun oh let me tell you i i, I know <laughs> i probably impressed on zoe um maybe an unhealthy amount of paranoia about the police but I grew up in a predominantly black area, and when I went to driver's ed, uh, it was it was maybe 90% black and taught by a black woman, and the instructions were keep a clip with you. Keep your driver's license, registration, proof of insurance free, not in a glove box. Keep them free and clipped. If you get pulled over, Roll your window almost all the way down. Leave about an inch or two. Clip your documents to the outside of the window. Put your hands through the window up to the, uh, up to the elbow and, uh, and kind of wave them around. Show that your hands are empty and leave them there as the cop approaches. This is what I was taught in driver's I, I, I bet you they don't teach this in a predominantly white area's driver's ed. No. No. They... They deem him emotionally disturbed um, at the police station, um, and they decide to send him to Bellevue Hospital for psychiatric observation um, that night. It's, it's the middle of the night. Um, they put him back in the van. He arrives at Bellevue Hospital at 3.22 a.m. When he arrives there, He's handcuffed, his legs are bound, he's comatose Wow. with a blood alcohol content of 0.22, oh. which is very high. Um, but he has cuts and bruises all over his body, and when he's like checked in and examined by the nurses at Bellevue, he is found, he's in a coma, he's brain dead. Uh, he and and it's like hem, he hemorrhaged which uh suggested that he was choked or strangled and he dies in that coma 13 days later so the city's medical examiner dr elliot m gross uh first autopsy first look said that michael stewart died because of alcohol poisoning um and 
Michael Stewart's family, uh, like, is is involved in this. I mean, he was still he was still living with his parents. Um, and uh, also, um, Suzanne Malouk is like part of this, trying to figure out like what happened to get justice because he just got put in the back of that van, and by the time he showed up at the hospital, was in a coma. Um, and he had already been beaten before then with all of these witnesses from inside Parsons, but like, you know, he was he was alive at the transit right, station. Right. Um, so he does a uh, Elliot Gross does a second autopsy and revises his statement to say that Michael Stewart actually died from a spinal cord injury in his upper neck. Um. And then revises it a third time and says that Michael Stewart died from blunt force trauma. Wow. Well, then what do you do with all that and, provision? Right. So, and he originally, he, he maintains like the injuries, the bruising, the wrist abrasions didn't contribute to his death. But the nurses from Bellevue said that his hands and his face were blue on arrival. It took them three minutes to be able to get the cuffs off and that he was brutally like beaten. Uh, and he had, he had, you know, just like bruises and cuts like on his face and on his body. Um, and Gross says that that, you know, didn't contribute at all. Uh, so the Stewart family hires their own doctors who find the cause of death to be strangulation. Um, but, and this is upsetting, um, they're uh, unable to 100% figure out what happened because... Gross, uh, the city's medical examiner, removed Michael Stewart's eyes and didn't let them be studied. He he removed those and kept them away from the other doctors. Um, and so an examination of his eyes would have shown if there was hemorrhaging due to lack of oxygen from being strangled. Uh, but he he took those and withheld the information. I think I heard about this. That that's making me think of that like maybe I heard Spike Lee talk about this. Um that he was strangled so much that like it popped his eyes out or something. And that that's part of why they that guy took them because then they wouldn't have that um the, the evidence. The evidence. Right. It would have been, it, it could have showed evidence. I mean, and, and like, why hide it unless it did show evidence of strangulation, like the doctors hired by the Stewart family found. So that the family, like, petitions the city that Gross should be removed as chief medical examiner. Um, but in the meanwhile, there's a, a grand jury investigation initiated into what really happened that night. Um, and so... There were, you know, there were witnesses, but there were conflicting reports from the witnesses because they, some of them said that he, they saw him be beaten by the officers. Others didn't say that they could see it. Um, and no one could identify which officers did what. And there were six officers on trial, um, which kind of screwed with the case. Um, and seven months into this case, a juror, initiates private investigations of the oh, case no. and and it gets found out and they have to dismiss the whole case um and 
have a a retrial because that was like that Um, triggered a mistrial or something right yeah because you can't just do your own not when you're a investigation as a juror right so so 20 black community leaders um including the city councilwoman mary pinkett uh go and protest outside of the district the manhattan district attorney's office robert m morgan thou uh at the criminal court building and he refuses to see them uh i guess because the case is like active um uh but in the second grand jury case three of the officers are uh on trial you know for um criminally negligent homicide assault and perjury and the other three just for perjury uh because they like said that they didn't see anything happen um and it's an all-white jury, and they're all acquitted. Um, and on- the only person who faces departmental charges in this whole thing is John Costick, the original transit officer. Um, and so off-duty MTA officers uh, go and march along Madison Avenue uh, with signs that say, like, end the witch hunt, when are we finally innocent? <laughs> um and right and there were counter demonstrations to that um and three mta board members uh get this report from a retired federal judge named harold r tyler jr who was like chiming in to see if any of their officers should face departmental charges um and he said he was the one who said that caustic perjured himself by saying Kosick said that he still saw Stewart breathing in the back of the van, uh, but the, like, medically, they found out that couldn't be true because of the time of death or, like, the time of when he went into the coma. So they said that Kostik perjured himself, but no one else was responsible for anything. And two out of the three board members that were reviewing this agreed. Uh, but the third was a woman who had a strongly worded dissent saying that, um the officers and their supervisors should face charges um but she was outvoted um and all that happens uh on this end i'll talk about the social ramifications in a minute but all that happens on this end is that i kind of want to talk about this for a second that the board approves additional training for transit officers in the handling of emotionally disturbed people. Um, And this uh... is a, yeah, this is a big like thing right now that maybe is gonna be controversial, but there's a big talk about reform slash defund when we're talking about the police right now in in 2021. Um, And a lot of what, you know, the current evolving thought is that I, especially reading this can't help but agree with is that you it is not enough to have more seminars and like classes for police officers in how to properly exist in a system that is so fundamentally and institutionally racist there cannot be do the thing that you have been doing but just do it slightly better because the thing 
that they have been doing is like dad was talking about in his story if if that's just the protocol if i mean talking for a second about duante right which just happened uh when we are recording this um like should it be legal to even tase someone at a traffic stop right if you know the defense right now is i thought it was a taser not a gun which for is kind of ridiculous right um, why were you simply because of the way why are you why can you tase citizens at like at all like the way that the police function right now defunding the police is diverting those funds to facilities that could better handle these sorts of things who would have been the best people to deal with the story that you talked about dad because honestly i was listening to that and i was like there should have been medical health profess like professionals and like conflict resolution people whose job it is to work with mentally ill people well i just even I don't know if I, it was a tweet or something that said, why do we even need to pull people over for traffic violations? Like, just well, write down their... We have the technology yeah. now. Like, just send them a bill. <laughs> you know, like, you don't need to uh, engage people. Like, you don't need to be a person with a gun engaging someone because their taillight is out. There's whole countries out there that don't carry around guns to shoot at people just for traffic violations sorry go ahead zoe well and i've also heard that routine traffic stops are are kind of um a lie (laughs) that that as far as people of color go there is not a routine traffic stop and that's why you got pulled over they are looking for an excuse for whatever they could possibly do to try to yeah you know that they could pick to brutalize people of color um but this is obviously a very tragic story and there was no justice or or whatever could even come close but but what did come out of it was the artistic community the like neo-expressionists that i was talking about um were really like had a very strong reaction after this um because not only was it seen as an attack on you know the black community but also as part of a a stifling and a suppression of street art that had been happening for a very long time you know the thing that he got even you know arrested or detained for right in the first place was just for tagging uh i mean which is ridiculous but um the uh yeah suzanne maluk um who is one of these east village 1980s creatives um she decided to um try to organize this michael stewart justice committee so they hired a legal team um because the family ended up eventually uh, suing the city. Dr. Gross was fired. The parents were given $1.7 million in a, oh. in a settlement. It is good. I mean, I'm glad that um, Gross, she was, Dr. Gross was right, that, fired. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, that he was fired. Yeah, 100%. Um, 
And and so the way that Maluk raised money for all of this, she went to one of the things she did was go to um galleries that were showing graffiti art, like galleries of graffiti art, and ask for donations. She got a uh she got money actually. Madonna did a show at Danceteria and donated all the proceeds um to the Michael Stewart Justice Committee. Oh. And Keith Haring, uh I mean, famous uh, queer artist um, from the 1980s, Keith Haring, gave a big donation. He gave uh, the money from a sale of one of his paintings. He he painted, uh, it was a painting uh, from Haring called Michael Stewart, USA for Africa. Um, and he was getting more and more politicized as an artist right around then. And he he wrote in his journal at the time about Michael Stewart they know they killed him. They will never forget his screams, his face, his blood. They must live with that forever. I hope in their next life they're tortured like they tortured him. Um, Basquiat paints a painting called The Death of Michael Stewart. Um, Andy Warhol, in part of his headline series painting from 1983, has a like New York Daily News article about Michael Stewart's death featured in it. Um, there's uh david hammonds a social realist had a, a stenciled print a few years later called the man nobody killed that was about michael stewart so that a lot of you know the like a lot of artists really really responded to this happening um because it was seen you know as also like an assault on artistic freedom um and yeah and and then spike lee i mean this was the first thing chronologically out of all of the ones we've talked about that is mentioned in do the right thing as an influence and it makes me wonder if you know this was one of the things that made spike lee first start you know how he wanted to make this movie i mean it's all um tragic on a truly incomprehensible institutional level uh that dates back to the the history and the founding of America. Um, and, and it all manifests in a very, I guess you could call it passive aggressive, but it's, it's a very uh, unaccountable way of passing the buck where it's all just, that's the way it's always been, that uh, this is just policy. I'm, I'm just doing what I've been trained and the trainers are just doing what the manual says and the manual is written by so many people that you can't identify one, and at, and at any rate, they're all dead anyway. And there's just there's no one to blame except everybody. When this movie, when do the right thing comes out? Uh, many white reviewers uh, in in New York and uh, just in the film industry in general uh, did not like it. It, it was, you know, 1989. It isn't. It wasn't 2020, where there are lots of, you know, liberal white people who were out there maybe protesting or, or at least, you know, posting about George Floyd. It was. They were saying like, this isn't what's real. Spike Lee made this up. This isn't how things really are. Spike Lee just, he's a race baiter. He just wants black people and white people not to get along. Uh, he's making this movie and if black people go see this movie and then go out 
and riot. Uh, it'll be Spike Lee's fault, and that's what could happen because he doesn't even realize, you know, he's made this thing where black people are creating a rioting in the movie, and he's going to make black people riot, and they just did not get it. And it, it was, I mean, Roger Ebert got it. Um, he he actually wrote a very good review, but other um, writers, uh, like for, there was a review in the New York Magazine by Joe Klein, and he said that, um, he said that Mookie throwing the garbage can through the window is one of the stupider, more self-destructive acts of violence I have ever witnessed. I mean, that's some hyperbole there. Like, really, in all the movies you've seen, a black pizza delivery man throwing a garbage can through a window is one of the worst things you've ever seen. And I guarantee you that <laughs> came from a point of, uh, of saying, okay, Mookie throwing a garbage can through the window of this white Italian guy. And should he have done that? Shouldn't he have done that? What was the right thing to do? What's his relationship to Saul? And, and, and they're not at all thinking about radio. No. And The worst thing in the movie was the, is right. the window broke, not Radio Rahim and was the point choked was, and killed. At that moment, Mookie was only thinking about radio. He wasn't weighing is Saul the right guy to take out my anger on? He was feeling his anger. And the people evaluating the movie look completely past that. Brett, I mean, I saw some things was like, well, maybe he did it to try to like draw attention away from Sal as a person so they wouldn't hurt him physically and just divert attention to the store. I'm like, I mean, maybe, but honestly, it's Mookie was working for him. And and was I mean the way it was staged like standing up there next to these white people while everyone else like mourned and raged and like at, there's a certain point where you can't you can't like you have to do right. and something this, and I think that's why it was Mookie who did it right because because he's the like right. the black person that the audience is most sympathetic for and actually Spike Lee did address that idea that maybe Mookie was trying to. Um, help Sal like physic you know like him personally and Spike Lee said no he said that is yeah, not what's no. happening he is ang Sal's angry Sal's not the victim in this story and this came right after um a scene of uh, immense hypocrisy where where Sal uh said I'm renaming this restaurant Sal and Sons and mm -hmm. So it's it's me and my sons, and you're gonna you're gonna be owners too, and you're gonna take it over someday. And Mookie, I've always thought of you as a son, and you always have a home here. And he didn't mean that Mookie is gonna be an owner of the place. He he said you're like a son, but you're not a son. Uh, and kind yeah, of, you kind can of, always work here as a pizza delivery. Yeah, boy. yeah, you're always welcome here to well, earn minimum wage. And the second wage. that the second that he snaps, he starts using racial slurs and he initiates yes. the violence it was not violent a i mean there's so much talk about every time there's there's something like i don't actually even like to use the word riots right, because protests. i think it's <laughs> i i feel like yeah every time there's protests that have like looting or property destruction people go to oh you should have been nonviolent but you know what's nonviolent like 
playing music really loud in protest. Right, or saying you're going to or... boycott. Right, that is the nonviolent protest. And the second that that happened, he initiated the destruction and the violence. And, and I mean, racial slurs. Like, he's, he's a... Hu- yeah. Right, he, he's not the victim. Like, Mookie is under no obligation to help him. Like, I... My, I don't think any viewers, except for maybe white viewers, sympathies would lie with Sal. Well, I mean, I think that's one of the really so many smart things in this movie. I mean, I can't even, but but yeah, <laughs> it shows that when Sal gets really angry, those racial slurs just pop right out so quickly, so easily. You know, the idea. But I read all these reviews back, you know, in 1989, and they were like, "But Sal was so." Sal loved all the black people in the neighborhood. He loved feeding them. He was their friend. I don't understand why Mookie would do that. And, and it's like, and I, that I was don't, very I don't smart. think you do. That was, Sal is the example of the non-racist white person who just needs a little threat to his livelihood to make the racism come out. Right. Well, right. And like when, um, when Pino starts going after Smiley um, when they're like having a conversation and Smiley's in the street and then Pino like walks out in their conversation. We can see him through the window. Sal isn't like defending. He isn't telling his son not to do that. In fact, that whole conversation is like, I know you don't like black people, but just like, like stick it out here. Like, right, don't that leave. racism's coming. It's not like you're wrong. I should, as your father, teach you something different. You know, like not at all. No, it's he's he's portrayed as different from Pino in that he isn't in the beginning of the film trying to enact violence on people of color, but he's not anti that's the thing, is like being if you're not racist, in order like you have to be anti it's not enough to just right. and that's not what use a slur. And he's not he's passive until he's right. racist. <laughs> really. That's, it's that's never what the good. Wall of pictures of just white uh, Italian American people. Right. In some ways it's I don't think people could understand it. A lot of the reviews I saw from nineteen eighty nine were like, Buggin' Out just has this stupid thing that he's m- making a trouble about. The idea that, you know, there should be representation (laughs) and now like we understand a lot more uh and we talk a lot more like no there there needs to be black people need to be included in all levels and all things because representation actually really really matters and why don't you have representation and that's right maybe it's indicative of a deeper problem like it was here it's not like well i'm a super non-racist guy i just i'm italian so i wanted to have italian people up there it's like no, they're actually, actually, you are racist and you can tell. So this movie, while now considered, you know, a masterpiece and, and a great movie, it lost at Cannes uh, Film Festival because the jury president found Mookie to be unheroic. The movie that won, though, and I'm kind of stealing this joke a little bit, was Sex, Lies, and Videotape. <laughs> So, like, James Spader's weird character was more heroic somehow? Absolutely not. Um, It was also mostly ignored at the Oscars. Spike Lee was nominated for Best Original Screenplay, and Danny Aiello was nominated for Best Actor, but neither won. It wasn't nominated for Best Picture. Best Picture, the movie that won, was Driving Miss Daisy, which has now become one of the most derided movies ever to win a Best Picture. And it had a kind of like simplistic, nostalgic 
for white people view of race relations. And it was about a black chauffeur played by Morgan Freeman driving around an old white woman played by Jessica Tandy. And it was kind of like she becomes good because she can make a black, one black friend, I guess. I actually haven't seen it and I never I, I didn't want to see it, it but but it has since people consider that one of the worst movies to ever win Best Picture. Um, Spike Lee finally won an Oscar in 2019 for Best Adapted Screenplay for Black Klansman. That was his first Oscar? His first Oscar win, yeah. Oh my God. Um, in a New York Times review that came out after, in around you know 1989, um, Spike Lee said, I wanted to generate discussion about racism because too many people have their head in the sand about racism. They feel that the problem was eradicated in the 1960s when Lyndon Johnson signed a few documents. But you don't know, Zoe, like growing up, people just, a lot of white people, thought of Spike Lee as someone who was just creating race problems. That by talking about racism, he was actually creating the problem somehow. But... I think to yeah, I actually read um, a response from Spike Lee to some of the things you were talking about, where um, uh, there were like critiques, like oh, um, if black people watch this movie, they might like decide to go start riots. Um, which, first of all, like good, yes, <laughs> but second of all, um, Spike Lee came back at that and was like, that is, you know not his words, but stupid and, yes, his words, racist, because the idea that a black audience would just be so, like, emotionally affected, or not emotionally affected, but that they would just be, like, wild in some way, um, like those critiques were implying, yeah, were and, racist. like, have no critical thinking, just be urged to action and violence um, but the white audiences wouldn't buy the newest Arnold Schwarzenegger movie is just insulting <laughs> and racist um, because, I mean, and I honestly think that we're less than a year out from the summer of 2020 in which, you know, protests engulfed the country. And I think they're still warranted. And if they were you know, if someone did go watch Do the Right Thing and was like, I am incensed, I want to protest, I think that would be perfectly understandable. But, like, the idea that that black audiences are somehow more easily pushed to violence than white audiences is ridiculous, especially when all of these things that we're hearing right now come from white violence right. and white fear. Right, and fear. Fear. There's so yeah. much fear of, like, black righteous anger yeah you know and so i recommend that if you haven't watched it in the last year and a half that you watch do the right thing um and now you know more about the stories that inspired it that directly you know that spike lee directly said inspired it and also included mentions of in the movie you can you'll notice them um and check out a lot of Spike Lee's other works. Yeah, and there's a there's yes. a, an interesting movie about Basquiat. Uh, it's I mean it's called Basquiat is the title of the movie. Uh, it was I mean it's not do the right thing. It's a good movie. Uh, mostly it, it's about emotions. It's about the height of emotions in the mind of a genius and and 
how art is created. Uh, but it, it's worth a watch uh, if you have time after Do the Right Thing because that's a better movie. <laughs> um, <laughs> now, we ask people to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts and a title of a movie, and I uh, would give it a little inspired by True Events treatment, which we did last time, or actually we forgot last time, but the time before about Elf. And so um, one reviewer asked us to look into the true events that inspired Luc Besson's Fifth Element. And the thing is, I don't have to give it a fake treatment because it really was inspired by something true, a true event. It was inspired by Plato. So Plato. (laughs) (laughs) The true event that is Plato. (laughs) Yeah. So Plato, you know, uh, ancient Greek times, they had this idea of the four elements that make up everything in the universe, earth, air, water, fire, and a but everything changed when the fire nation <laughs> and a fifth element which they called aether a e t h e r ether ether in it but like I in latin you. um and basically it meant the essence and it's where we get the word quintessence the fifth element quint essence so they thought that that was what made up well, Plato and, and people who were following Plato and like this idea, uh, that that made, it was like a distinctive element, an unknown substance that like permeated what they said, the celestial sphere and was even more pure than the other elements. More pure than fire, more pure than water <laughs> or earth or air. Um, and that this fifth element um, they, they had ideas about it, like it moves in a circular motion, but all the other elements move in a straight line. <laughs> they had <laughs> yeah, that checks out. So the circles are the perfect shape, right? And when we talk about something, it's like the quintessence of something means the the purest form of that thing, and so that's right. The quintess Spike Lee's quintessential, right, quintessential. <laughs> yeah. So that is where Luc Besson got the idea of the fifth element and that um, Lilu? Lilu. Lilu is like, she is a, I don't know, a supernatural godlike being who is an elemental force of the, in the universe. She's the fifth element. She is like the, she is that force, the fifth element, the quintessence, a supernatural being who is, I mean, I don't know if she's supposed to be like the quintessence of, Circular humanity, right? She does move in a very circular, nonlinear fashion. <laughs> <laughs> um, you can also see other, uh, like Latin and, and Greek influences in the fifth element. So, like the word multi, the is Latin for multus, and it means that is used to show that something comprises many things of a kind. Multi. And then the Latin word passes, which means to step or pace. So multis passes is one of the uh, the Latin roots for one of the... Multipass. Multipass. Lilu dalas multipass. Ruby. Rod. Rod. So ruby is red, and rod is, I don't know if you know this, but they actually spell it R-H-O-D, like roads, 
like ro- the Greek. I can't tell if this is the part where you're doing bullshit or if this is. Re- I genuinely may- can't tell if no, this it's is actually spelled real information R-H-O-D. or not. It is spelled R H O D, and that could come from the Greek rhodos, which could be um, it could be rhodron, like rose, or it could be arid, which means snake. So like red snake or red rose is what ruby rod can come from. Okay, but and. <laughs> And Ruby Rod was played by Chris Tucker. Yes. Now, Chris is, is short for uh, for Christ. It's yes. the Christ. And Tucker is short for Tucker. I hardly know her. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So that is the true ev- events. <laughs> <laughs> that inspired. <laughs> that inspired Fifth I, Is it going to ruin our bit if I say a, a real thing about oh, no, the Fifth Element? Oh, no, because we can just, we can, no. <laughs> Well, you'll just cut it out no, if I say I'm going to say some true. true things as well. And I have. And all the things I've just said are true. But go on. Well, right. Of course. Um, I actually, this movie is one of the quintessential uh, examples of one of my favorite ever sexist tropes called Born Sexy Yesterday. <laughs> um which is an actual thing uh, that Lilu is one of the biggest examples of a born sexy yesterday character, which is like a woman. I mean, it's pretty self-explanatory. It's it's like a woman who's either uh, like very who's very childlike and like doesn't know anything about the world and yet is super sexy and like you can and will have sex with her in She's the kind course of like of a the child movie. that you can have sex um, with. Well, but at, at some right. point... it's a child that you can have At some sex. point, uh, Corbin Dallas kisses her and she says, uh, ectogamut, I think, uh, which translates to never without my permission. Oh. And I think she like hit him or something. Hmm. Well, that's good. It's still, yeah, it's a very, I think, um, gosh, I wish I remembered who coined that term. But I mean, I always thought she was great. You know, I was a kid with dyed hair, and I I love that vibe. But I I do realize it's yeah. I guess it's uh, the trip that a woman who has the mind of a naive yet highly skilled child in the body of a mature sexualized woman. Well, uh, the videos uh, writer slash producer Jonathan McIntosh cites the Fifth Element as quote unquote probably the most quintessential. <laughs> And he didn't even know what he was saying, did he? Also, like Splash and Enchanted and Stargate well, we and Splash, stuff like that. Just because I like Tom Hanks and Daryl Hannah. And Stargate, because I just I like Stargate. Wasn't there going to be a version where Channing Tatum was the one who was born sexy yesterday? Listen, when is that coming? Because that I, I watch. have one more thing that since we're talking about Luc Besson, that we could do, but I don't think we will. We could do the Professional, which is also based on true events. The true uh, event of Luc Besson. Yeah. Um, falling in love and having a relationship with a 12-year-old girl <laughs> who then he married when she was 15 and she is the actress who plays the blue-skinned singer in Fifth Element. Oh, wow. That was his wife that he met when she was 12. Oh, my God. That he was 32 God. and she when she was 15 and they got married. She had a baby, his baby when she was 16 and during the filming of The Fifth Element, he left her for Mila Jovovich. <gasps> So we know he, he left, left her after picking her up as a twelve-year-old. I'm not saying that I right. want them to be no, together. And, and but let me, dear um, God, why are yeah. men like that? So right, the true event <laughs> that inspired the <laughs> professional, she, the actress, which I am pulling up her name right this second. Y'all are getting yeah, two, a two for, for one. one. Her name is mm, Mywin. 
M-A-I with two dots over it, W-E-N-N. Oof. Okay. So she... Is she Welsh? She's French. Ah. So she was 12 when they met, and he was 29, and they began dating oh. when she was 15, and then at 16, she gave birth to their daughter, and she says she was in the DVD extras for the film Leon the Professional. She says the film is based on her relationship with Luc Besson. So they included it in the DVD extras and making me feel squicky about being yeah. Matilda. From <laughs> Matilda in that movie, they just have a like emotional relationship, I guess. But in real life, uh, just you know, let her grow up a couple years and then he married her. So that is the true story behind the professional <laughs> that we're not going to do a whole episode on because I don't want to. Right, we've already done it. <laughs> I can't end mm-hmm. this episode without just a shout out to Giancarlo oh. Esposito yeah. for like his performance. I mean, because we're seeing him so much nowadays because he's in The Mandalorian. He was in Dear White People. Better Call he, Saul. He was in something else that we just saw. But yeah. And I mean, he's he's in so much nowadays but like seeing him young and in a role where he really gets to play a black character which i know i i've seen interviews with him like is something that he's talking about now of like with his identity like i think this was um kind of a big deal for him getting to like play a black character in a black community talking about black right. issues yeah. um and oh my gosh, he just completely killed. I mean, in a really good, talented cast, um, he absolutely kills yeah, it. He was <laughs> everyone in that movie. I mean, I again, I really recommend people going back and watching it if they haven't seen it recently because it is just it's so good. The acting is good. The cinematography is good. The music is great. Uh, we actually. Oh, the music is so good. And Public Enemy's song that they wrote oh, yeah. for okay, this you know, movie is so Giancarlo good. Esposito is also in The Boys. That's the other thing. Right. Yeah, he's like he's like a villain in so many things nowadays. A kind of like cold, calculating yeah. villain that it's so cool to see him young and like this like firebrand, you know. <laughs> oh, 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 I wanted to say two of the actors actually. The actor that played the mayor, Ossie Davis, and Ruby the Dee. actress that played mother sister, Ruby D, are actually uh, a married or were a, a married yeah. couple who um, Spike Lee's dad knew. Spike Lee's dad was a musician who scored like lots yeah, he of scored, his films, the right and thing. he like knew them. Yeah, um, which I think is so sweet seeing their chemistry. Yeah, you the want them to get too. together. <laughs> Yeah. Um, so yeah, we'll have a treat at the end of this episode. Um, neither Brian nor Zoe's song, but a special music uh, type thing from Do the Right Thing. So stay tuned at the end of the episode uh, to hear something from the actual movie. And, and Zoe, uh, if you're around NYU, you bump into Spike Lee, uh, tell him I say hey. I am two degrees away from Spike Lee. I have a friend from my studio who met Spike Lee. I mean, he's just here at our film school all the time, uh, apparently hanging out with people. So yeah, if I if I catch him around the block, I'll... Uh... <laughs> like Film Fam, inspired by true events? Subscribe to hear more stories that inspired our favorite films. For photos and links from the show and other shenanigans, follow us on Instagram at Film Fam Podcast. 
on Twitter at FilmFam underscore podcast or on Facebook at FilmFam Inspired by True Events. If you have any questions, comments, corrections, or films whose inspiration you would like us to explore, you can email us at filmfampodcast at gmail.com. Thank you, Brian. Thank you, Zoe. Thank you for listening. See you next time. Bye. Bye. Woo! Hey, Jay, if I want to take a shot in the middle of the day, it's all right. Fuck style. We love roll call, y'all. Boogie Down Productions, Rob Bates, Dana Dane. Molly Marl, Olatunji, Chuck D, Ray Charles, EPMD, EU, Alberta Hunter, Run DMC, Stetsasonic, Sugar Bear, John Coltrane, Big Daddy Kane, Salt and Pepper, Luther Vandros, McCoy Tyner, Biz Marquis, New Edition, Otis Redding, Anita Baker, Thelonious Monk, Marcus Miller, Branford Marcellus, James Brown, Wayne Shorter, Tracy Chapman, Miles Davis, Force MDs, Oliver Nelson, Fred Wesley, Maceo, Janet Jackson, Louis Armstrong, Duke Ellington, Jimmy Jam, Terry Lewis, George Clinton, Count Basie, M. Toomey, Stevie Wonder, Bobby McFerrin, Dexter Gordon, Sam Cooke, Parliament Funkadelic, Al Jarreau, Teddy Pendergrass, Joe Williams, Wynton Marsalis, Phyllis Hyman, Sade, Sarah Vaughn, Roland Kirk, Keith Sweat, Cool Modi, Prince, Ella Fitzgerald, Diana Reeves, Aretha Franklin, Bob Marley, Bessie Smith, Whitney Houston, Dion Warwick, Steel Pulse, Little Richard, Mahalia Jackson, Jackie Wilson, Cannonball and Nat Adderley, Quincy Jones, Marvin Gaye, Charles Mingus, and Mary Lou Williams. We want to thank you all for making our lives just a little brighter here on We Love Radio.